We shall now turn to Romans chapter, uh, to Revelation rather, chapter 7, and take us our text tonight, verse 13. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 13. One of the angels answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? We are all on a journey. Here we have no continuing city. We can't stay in this world. Some of us maybe will live till we're 80 years old, or maybe 90 years old, perhaps even 100. But one day we all have to leave this place. And where are we going? Some people think that this life is all that there is. You die and you're buried and you rot and that's it. They think that men and women are just like a candle. It's snuffed out. It's a little bit of smoke and then it's gone. But actually, as we're told in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, eternity is in the heart of man. Olam is in the heart of man, eternity. There are very few people, really, who don't believe in the afterlife. There is that awareness inside that death is not the end. We're on a journey. And the Bible tells us that there's a heaven, there's a hell, the celestial city and the lake of fire. Where are we going? Sadly, the vast majority of people, although they know that there's an afterlife, they're kind of drugged. They're sleepwalking, sleepwalking towards the pit, the bottomless pit. It's like somebody who's blindfolded, and they're walking along, and in front of them, there's a, a great pit. They can't see it. They're on the edge of a cliff, as it were. And any moment, they're going to take that false step. And over they go. And where? Into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. Jesus often spoke about it. The place where the worm dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. The worm always eating away. The fire always burning. The place of weeping, of wailing, and of gnashing of teeth. But as Christians, 
as those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, as those who trust in the cross of Calvary, our hope is that there's a wonderful future in front of us. This week, my wife and I will be leaving, going back home to Scotland. Perhaps we'll never meet again in this world, but we will meet again. One day, we'll meet at God's right hand, or where will you be? God has a right hand, and God has a left hand. All mankind are divided into two. Those on the right hand to whom he says, Come ye blessed. And those on the left hand to whom he says, Depart ye cursed into that place prepared for the devil and his angels. So when we meet again, I hope you will be with me in heaven. But make sure, don't just leave it as, well, I hope, but have the kind of Christian hope which is like an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, fixed within the veil, so that you're able to say with the Apostle Paul, I know him in whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, tonight, I would like us to think about heaven. And first of all, what will heaven be like? This book of Revelation was given to the Apostle John, a revelation from Jesus Christ to John for the benefit of the church. The church at the time was subject to terrible persecution. They needed encouragement, and God in his great mercy gave this book of Revelation, and it describes the things which are yet to come, and it sets before us Christ, who is more than a conqueror, and it tells us that we are more than conquerors in him, that we have a blessed future. And here in this chapter we're told about the wonderful heaven that Christ has gone to prepare for us. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be worried. Don't be apprehensive about the future. You believe in God. Well, believe in me, Jesus Christ. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, lots of room. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to be with myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a great prospect. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is.
and having this hope in you, purify yourself, even as he is pure, as Christ is pure. So what are we told then about heaven in this passage here? Well, look at verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man can number. It's rather interesting that in the first part of the chapter you're told about 144,000, 12 from each tribe. The Jehovah Witnesses describe that 144,000 as those who are in heaven. And they think of them as very special people. They have three categories in the future, whereas the Bible teaches only two. There's 144,000 very special Jehovah Witnesses who go to heaven. And then there's the rest of the Jehovah Witnesses who'll be in the new earth. And then there's the unbelievers who are annihilated, who don't exist. But the Bible tells us, of course, there's a heaven and hell. And actually, when you look at the first part of the chapter here, it's not talking about heaven. It's talking about earth. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. You see, this is talking about the present time. And he cried to the, and with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. God's people are sealed. The stamp of God is put upon their foreheads. They are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So all around people are suffering. People are being destroyed and cast into hell. But God's people are sealed and kept. And whatever trials and troubles they have, they shall never perish. 12,000 from the different tribes. Three, the Trinity. Four, four corners of the earth. Three, fours, 12. 12,000, the different tribes. The new Israel. The new people of God. The church of God. Kept by him. 12,000 from each tribe. They are sealed on their foreheads. And in the day when he makes up his jewels not one of them will be lost. But then, verse 9, there's a change. After that I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, far more than 144,000, a great multitude. And that great multitude are in heaven. A great multitude, not a few at different times in life, and so often it's a minority who are true Christians. Jesus said that there's two ways. There's the broad road that leads to hell, and many go through the broad gate and along the broad road to hell. And then there's a narrow gate that leads to life, and few there be that find it. The narrow gate is the new birth. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
few that find it, and yet here we're told of a great multitude. Yes, it will be a great multitude, a great multitude which no man can number. Abraham was told that his seed would be as the stars of heaven. Nobody can number the stars of heaven. I've heard somebody say that there's how many stars in heaven? A hundred thousand million billion trillion stars in heaven. Well, who can number them? So, so many. And the grains of sand on the seashore, who can number them? So many. And who can number the Lord's people? The children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. What a multitude there will be. From every generation ever since the days of Adam and Eve onward. But it would seem that before the end of the world there's going to be a great influx of many, many more coming into the church. A vast multitude. Satan bound and the kingdom of God expanding dramatically. Yea, all the mighty kings on earth before him down shall fall. And all the nations of the world do service to him shall. These are the promises. Read a psalm like Psalm 72 and it speaks of a wonderful advancement of the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And the glory of the Lord shall cover the face of the earth, even as the waters cover the face of the deep. Blessed days ahead. And here we're told at the end of the world, a great multitude which no man can number. Christ will see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Christ, the travail labor pains. His labor pains will not produce wind, not produce a little remnant. Often it's just a remnant, but at the end of the day, it will be a great multitude. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. As the stars of heaven and as the sand by the seashore. So that's the first thing about heaven. There'll be a huge multitude there. And then we're told that it will be from all nations. And Christ himself tells us that he will not return until the gospel is preached to all nations. Well, that's happened already, hasn't it? There's Christians to be found today in every nation of the world. Even in countries like Korea, which North Korea, which are so hostile to the gospel and where... Christians are put to death for their Christian faith. Yet, God has his people in Korea. Every country is Christians. And that tells us that the coming of Christ is drawing nigh. But they'll be there from all nations. There'll be no racism in heaven. Every race will be present. No race is despised by God. Whatever background, whatever race, God chooses. And he's no respecter of persons. His, his elect will be found 
amongst every race, every family of mankind. And there'll be no racism in heaven. All will be together as the one family of God. What a wonderful prospect. Out of every tribe and nation and tongue, all united in beautiful harmony. Before the throne, and the throne is vital. Remember when John was taken into heaven in Revelation chapter 4? What was the first thing he saw? A throne. Heaven is the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's heaven. All around the throne. The throne is central. God is in the midst. It's all God-centered and Christ-centered. And there is the throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne of God. God created the world, and why did he make it? For his own glory. And the world will glorify and enjoy him. The world of the redeemed, the multitude will glorify and enjoy him. And there, around about the throne, they will gather the elders, the four beasts, the angels, and the redeemed. Gathered around the throne. So the throne is central. God is the creator. God is the preserver. God is the redeemer. God is the judge. God over all, blessed forever. He plans salvation, God the Father. God the Son earns salvation on the cross. God the Holy Spirit applies salvation to men and women. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Before the throne. And that's where, if we're God's people, where we're going. Going to be in the presence of God forever. God, of course, is everywhere today. God is present here and God is omnipresent. But God's presence will be visible. The invisible God will be visibly present in the midst of his people in heaven. How wonderful it will be. Heaven is God-centered. And you and I will live, if we get to heaven, we will be God-centered forevermore. Too much in this world we are man-centered, earth-centered, world-centered. But one day we will be God-centered. Our whole lives revolving around him. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And we are. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, the Muslims, they have a very different idea of heaven. Heaven is a place where it's sensual, it's man-centered. Those, those fellows who are involved in uh, jihad, and they kill people, and they bomb themselves to bits and suicide bombings, 
They think that they're going to heaven to have all these virgins which they're going to sexually enjoy and feasting forevermore. It's just an extension of the lust of the flesh. So carnal, so worldly, sensual, and devilish. But heaven is not going to be man-centered. Heaven is God-centered. God is in the midst. God's throne is there. It's a spiritual place, a holy place, not a sensual place. Before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Oh, how vital it is that the Lamb is there in heaven. No human being will get to heaven but through the Lamb, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, we're told there about the book that is sealed, the purposes of God, and no one in heaven or on earth was found worthy to open the book, to take the book and to open the seals. And John wept because that was the case, and then he was told, weep not, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book, to take the book and open the seals. And he looked, and he was expecting to see this mighty lion. And what did he see? But a lamb as if it had been slain. Because when the lion of the tribe of Judah became the lamb and died as the lamb, that's when he conquered Satan, who through death, destroyed him that hath the power of death. That is the devil. How did he crush Satan's head? By dying on the cross in the Roman place of sinners and earning salvation for his people. The Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lamb as if it had been slain. He became a man. He sacrificed himself for us. He humbled himself to death and to the grave, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of all, in the highest possible position for a creature to be. He's Lord of all, King, prophet, priest, and King of his people. He's our prophet, priest, and king forever. He's our teacher. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate with the Father. He's our ruler, our leader, our guide, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our all and in all. Christ is everything. Christ in him crucified. Christ in him risen. Christ forever. My Lord and my God, my King, my Savior. Heaven is centered on Christ. Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He we will worship forevermore. He's worthy of worship. And we will worship him forever around the throne. How amazing he is in his person. Great and glorious. And how amazing in his finished work. The great Redeemer before the throne. And then we're told about white robes. 
clothed with white robes. Those who get to heaven, they're clean. Nothing unclean will enter heaven. Nothing filthy will get in there. Nothing sinful or impure. Without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and adulterers and fornicators and wicked, filthy people. But without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. That's why we have to strive after holiness. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope unto the end. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Don't think you'll get to heaven with low standards. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. How important it is for us then to be diligent, to be dedicated, to be committed, to be faithful, to be enduring and persevering, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to be living for God each day of our lives and not living for the flesh or for the world, living for God. White robes, cleansed, washed, justified, sanctified, Without holiness, no man shall see God. And then, palms in their hands. Waving the palms, a sign of victory. How wonderful. Waving these palms. For so long we struggled, despised, trampled upon by our fellow creatures, mocked and ridiculed and persecuted. But now, with the palms in our hands, hallelujah, praise the Lord more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Christ goes forth on his white horse, conquering and to conquer. We follow in with Christ, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Palm branches in their hands. Victory is sure. Triumph is certain. And then singing, verse 10 cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. All glory to God. Not to us. Not unto us, Lord. Not to us, but do thou glory take. It's not my works. It's not my goodness. It's not my faithfulness. It's not my decision for Christ. It's not anything that I have done that saves me. To God be the glory. He began the good work in me. He continued the good work in me. He completed the good work in me. Glory be to God. God did it all. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He started it and he completes it. No, it's not down to us. Our decisions or our free human will deciding for him. It's not our works that save us, not our merit that saves us. It's all of grace. Glory be to God. Praise be to him. Singing his praises then forever. And then we're told about the angels in verse 11. How they fell down and worshipped. The angels. 
ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who are heirs of salvation. The angels at this point are higher than us. Christ, when he became a man, became a little lower than the angels to save us. But one day we're going to be raised higher than the angels to sit with Christ in his throne. How wonderful. The angels are ministering servants sent forth to serve the Christians, to serve the family of God, the children of God. Angels falling down and worshipping. They are God's ministers, God's servants. They carry out his will and they spend their time praising God, blessing. Verse 12 blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. God is the God who blesses us. God is the God who is glorious. God is the source of wisdom. Thanksgiving to him for everything good. Honor given to him. Power belongs to him. Might is his be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. In verse 15, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Before the throne of God. What will you do in heaven? Will you be bored? All kinds of silly ideas are suggested. But here we're told quite clearly what we're going to be doing in heaven if we get there. Praising God, worshipping God, day and night, forever and ever and ever. They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, praising and glorifying God. And God is so glorious, so infinitely glorious, so incredible impossible for us to fathom the depths of his glory so throughout eternity we will be discovering more and more and more of his glory and responding to it in worship and adoration glorifying God forevermore and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them and that's what's so wonderful about heaven, isn't it? God in the midst of her doth well. God dwelt in the midst of Israel in Old Testament times. God dwelt in the temple at Jerusalem. From time to time he would withdraw. But God will dwell forever with his people in heaven. In a much fuller, richer to a far greater extent than in Old Testament times. In the Old Testament, he was in the temple, in the tabernacle, hidden behind the veil. But there will be no veil, no tabernacle to keep the ordinary people of God out, as it were. God will be in the midst. And you know, when you have a moment of God's presence, it's so enriching. When you have a a tiny moment when God blesses you and you're blessed in reading His Word or in praying, whatever it is, and worshiping Him. It's so thrilling. 
And if a moment of God's presence is so wonderful here on earth, what will it be like to have God forever in the midst? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst. Hunger and thirst belongs to this world. Some people know terrible hunger. People in places where there's famine or great poverty. Thirst. They shall not thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light upon them nor any heat. They won't be out, as it were, under the burning sun. They won't be burnt. They won't be struggling with high temperatures. The sun shall not light upon them. There'll be nothing uncomfortable. There'll be no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no curse in heaven. All these pains and sufferings were things that came in with the sin of man, with a curse, but there'll be no curse in heaven. And the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, shall shepherd them, shall care for them. We will have one to look after them, to look after us. The good shepherd who knows his sheep, who calls his sheep by name. The good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He will be our shepherd forever. The lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them to living fountains of water. With joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. There will be the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne of God and the Lamb and the Holy Spirit is the water of life, proceeding from the throne. And you drink deeply of the Spirit, enjoying the fullness of God's Spirit. Christ shall lead us to living fountains of water and fountains of the living water and the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Tears belong to this world, to Baker's veil, going through this world of tears. There's so much sorrow and sadness, so much grief and disappointment, so much pain, so much wickedness, so much suffering and death. But all that is gone. Tears belong to hell, the place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But in heaven, God himself wipes away the tears from your eyes. It's a place of joy forevermore. What will heaven be like? Well, you see something of what heaven is like. But then secondly, who are those who get to heaven? Verse 13, One of the angels answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are these arrayed in robes? 
Remember when Adam sinned, when he took the forbidden fruit, what was the first thing that happened? He felt naked, naked and ashamed before God. He and Eve started to try and make for themselves aprons of fig leaves. Didn't really work. God, in his mercy then, made them clothes out of uh, the skins of animals. These were the first sacrifices. Animals had to die. And these animals that died were symbolical of Jesus Christ. Christ giving his life for us. Christ hanging naked on the cross so that you would be clothed with his righteousness. We have robes. It's not fig leaves that we have to try and cover us, but we have robes made of the righteousness of Christ. Jesus was naked so that we would be covered. The atonement, the word atonement in the Hebrew is the word kefir, which means covering, covering. We have a covering. And the righteousness of Christ is our covering. By, by grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. By faith we receive Christ. We clothe ourselves, as it were, with the righteousness of Christ. By faith. A faith which is the gift of God. And so we have clothing. Jesus tells a parable about a king making a feast, a wedding feast for his son. Those who were invited made excuses. They didn't want to come. The church people, the Jews, the hypocrites in the church. So the king sent out his servants into the highways and byways to gather in the halt, the lame, and the blind. And they came, and they were gathered in. And at the door there were wedding garments, and they put on these wedding garments in place of their rags. But then there was one man, and he thought his rags were pretty good. He was very proud of his own good works and his own life. And so he went into the wedding feast without a wedding garment. And the king came in, and he saw this man without the wedding garment, and he said, How camest thou in hither without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the pit. We need a wedding garment. Do you have that wedding garment? Do you have Jesus Christ's righteousness to clothe you? And then we notice that it says here, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sadly, even after being converted, you and I sin. Sometimes we sin terribly. But we can repent. By God's grace, we can repent. And we can come again to that fountain that was opened for sin and for uncleanness. But you are washed, but you are sanctified through the Lord Jesus, through the blood of Christ. You wash your garment. It's defiled, but now it's washed. 
I remember as a young fellow, my house at home, and there were two old ladies in, and they were talking to my mother. And one said to the other, I hope I'll make it home to heaven without defiling my garments. thought that was very strange. What could these old women do that would defile their garments? They seemed such holy, godly women. But oh yes, there's plenty we can do to to defile our garments. And how we must pray. Pray that we would be kept, kept by the power of God, kept from defiling our garments. But if we do, let us remember there's the blood there. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's hope for sinners. Hope for penitent sinners, if sinners will repent. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, as white as wool, if you will hear, if you will listen to the Lord. If only you will hear, come and wash in that fountain that was opened for sin and for uncleanness. Every day we're to pray, forgive us our trespasses. Yes, every day we should be coming to the fountain to be washed. These are they that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb white through washing them with red blood. How amazing, and yet so true. They wear robes, they wear washed robes. And then we are told they have passed through great tribulation. These are they that have come out of great tribulation. Now, everybody who lives in this world knows something about tribulation. Whoever we are, whether we're Christians or not, we have our trials, because this is a cursed world. God cursed the world after the fall of man. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. And so we find weeds grow far more readily than plants. We find that there's disease that affects things, affects vegetation, affects animals. There's sicknesses that affect ourselves. There's pains in childbirth. There's pains and sicknesses as we make our way through life. Sometimes it's just a cold, a sore throat, but it can bother us enough. Maybe we've got an upset tummy and it's not very pleasant. Other times it's more serious illnesses, sometimes disabling, sometimes cancers and other horrible sicknesses. These things are common to mankind. Everyone in making their way through this world will have their share of tribulations. And then there's accidents, and there's quarreling and fighting, and there's wars, and there's people cheating us, and people treating us badly. All these things happen generally to mankind because of the sinfulness of man. 
and because of the cursed nation nature of the world. But then there are special afflictions which God's people have. They've got more afflictions than the unconverted. One thing that God's people have that the, the wicked don't have is chastisement. If you're a Christian, God corrects you. He disciplines you. What son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? If you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Illegitimate, rejects. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he corrects. And there's plenty in our lives to cause him to correct us. And so, as Christians, we have greater tribulation because we get God's rod coming down upon us. We have, as it were, these pains coming upon us from our Heavenly Father because He loves us. And He doesn't want us to go on and sin and destroy us ourselves. God has no spoiled children. Some parents spoil their children. They let them off with everything. But God never spoils his children. He disciplines and corrects us. And we are to thank God for the discipline. But it's not easy. It's painful. It's not joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. So that's something that we have that the unconverted don't have. And then there's something else. We have trials. God sends trials to develop our faith. You know, with um, athletes, if they're running, say they're running in the Olympics, these athletes have to do lots of rigorous exercise. They're testing themselves constantly, and they're being pushed to their limits. They're having, as it were, to push through the pain barrier. Bit by bit, their inertia has been, their, their, their energy has been built up. Their, um, their, their strength is increasing through these trials. The more that they push themselves, the stronger they become. And so it is with God's children. He is developing our holiness, and he develops it through trials and tribulations. We think of Job. God allowed Satan to test him so that he would come forth as gold. His great wealth was lost in one day. His family, seven sons and three daughters, killed by a freak storm, a wind that blew down their house on top of them. His health affected from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet covered in boils, itchy, painful boils. He was miserable sitting in the ashes with a pot chair scraping himself. His wife said, curse God and commit suicide. 
Three friends came along to comfort him. And they ended up saying to him, you're just a big sinner and that's why all this has happened to you. If only you'd confess your sin, then things would be better. You've done something terribly wicked, just own up. There he was being accused of wickedness that he had never done. It was hard for him. A grievous trial. But it was blessed to him. And the latter end of Job was better than the beginning. And God's children are put, thankfully, very few of us through trials to the same extent as Job. But yet we are put through trials and troubles and pains and suffering come our way and things that are very negative and hard for us to bear. People being nasty to us, horrible things happening to us, troubles in our families, all kinds of problems that come our way, disappointments, discouragements, accidents, all these things happen and they're hard to bear. And yet, if we approach them properly, they are for our good. Because we have God's assurance to us. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Nothing can happen to you as a Christian but, th- but something that's, f- that's for your benefit. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by bad luck. It's all directed by God in a good way. So trials come to the Christian in order to develop their faith. But there's one other kind of tribulation that comes to the Christian that the ungodly doesn't have. And that is, of course, persecution. Marvel not that the world hate you. Before the world hated you, it hated me. Don't be, dis- don't be surprised if you're persecuted. Don't be surprised if uh, people are nasty to you, spiteful to you, treat you badly, mock you, ridicule you. Don't be, dis- don't be surprised if hypocritical Christians particularly kick you and do unpleasant things for you, towards you. Remember the Pharisees in the time of Jesus. They were his worst enemies. Persecution. Well, we have in the New Testament the case of Stephen, a man whose face shone like an angel. He knew his Bible. He was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And they hated him. And they threw stones at him until they killed him. And he, saying, Father, forgive them, he said, he said, uh, lay not this sin to their charge. He could see heaven, and in heaven he could see Christ standing, waiting to receive him. Lord Jesus, into thine hands I commend my spirit. What a beautiful witness it was. We think of James beheaded by Herod for his faith. We think of Paul, the Apostle Paul, Five times he said, Received I forty stripes, save one. Thirty-nine lashes from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. 
One time he was stoned and left unconscious. All these persecutions, many times in prison, and eventually dying as a martyr. Marvel not that the world hate you. As Christians today, we get off a lot easier than many Christians. We have a lot of freedom, but there's still times when people treat us in a not a very pleasant way, and it's hurtful. They despise us, and they try and hurt us. We have these persecutions, but you notice here, they have passed through great tribulations. Yes, we will have our tribulations, our great tribulations, but these are they which have passed through great tribulations, not which have sunk in them and been lost, but they have passed through, they've been enabled to go through the valley of the shadow of death with all its shadows and all its threatenings. They have gone through fire and water, and thou hast brought them to a wealthy place. Yes, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. And when thou goest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Passing through. We have our fires, we have our rivers, we have our streams where we can be drowned, but yet we will not be drowned. These are they which came out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Friends, what a blessed future there is for us. A great heaven. And it's good for us to meditate on these things. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, he used to meditate every evening. At dusk, he would meditate on heaven. And eventually he wrote a book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest. A wonderful book about heaven. Meditate upon heaven. Strengthen your hope as you meditate on heaven. And let that meditation encourage you. Having this hope in you, purify yourself even as he is pure. Christ is pure. Be pure like him. Consider heaven. Let it be a great incentive to you to press on, to run the race. Keep your eyes on the prize, pressing on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful prize ahead for those who keep on running, keep on going, keep on keeping on, trusting in Christ pressing on toward the mark for the prize. And friends, if you're not sure where you're going to end up, surely it's time to seek the Lord. Make your peace with God. Seek to be sure that you're on the way to heaven. The alternative, hell, 
does not bear contemplating. How awful that any of us should end up in a lost eternity. Let heaven encourage us to seek the Lord and to be sure that we are in Christ, that we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. Let us pray. Grant, O Lord, that we would be amongst those blessed ones who die in the Lord, those blessed ones who make, by grace, make our way to heaven. Grant, O Lord, that we would press forward and grant that as each day passes, more and more our mind would be upon heavenly things, setting our affections on those things that are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, remembering that our life is hid with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. So bless us then, each one. Part us with thy blessing, forgiving our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>